Totally. So we are currently driving up the Gunflint Trail on the edge of the Boundary Waters and we're going to meet this guy named Matthew Baxley. He does some audio and video work about the Boundary Waters area and you said he had some questions. Yeah, he has some questions about our work at the Campaign to Save the Boundary Waters. So we're going to head up the trail and have a little chat. Great. Matthew, nice, nice to, to meet, meet you. you. Hey, Megan, nice to meet you. Hey, Megan, thanks for coming out. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to meet with us. How was the drive up the Gunflint? It was great, beautiful as ever. Yep, yep, easy peasy. Awesome. Uh, I know you guys came a long way for this. I hope you had other business to take care of. But yes, personal, you know, it's always great to get up here. So, happy to do it. Yeah, love Grand Marais, love the Gunflint, so. So, let's just get into it. I mean, uh, did you ordered some food. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got some french fries coming. Hey, awesome. Okay, great. Um, yeah, what, what sort of questions did you have for us? We'd love to... You just want to dive into yeah, it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I mean, I've, I've lived in, and worked up here pretty much completely wrapped up with the Boundary Waters for over six years now. And I've pretty much seen the campaign in the periphery. I think, actually, I think I've met or at least seen you both at like Canoe Copia or Midwest Mountaineering yeah. out, uh, Adventure Expo or something. Um, and it seems like this campaign, this whole Save the Boundary Wars thing is pretty trendy. Like, seems like the thing to be into if you like the Boundary Waters. Uh, but I just kind of wanted to maybe talk with you a little more directly about if this is really... If it's really as a big a deal as it seems, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. I mean, we're certainly biased in saying we think it's a pretty big deal, but uh, we can kind of break it down a little bit in terms of why we think it's a big deal. Uh, Megan, you want to you wanna kick it off? Yeah, so the Boundary Waters is actually America's most visited wilderness. I don't know if you knew that, but um, yep. Yep. <laughs> so it's currently threatened by a sulfite or a copper mine, um, and this mine is located just outside the wilderness boundary. Um, right on Birch Lake, right on the South Quishwe River. So if it were to pollute, it would pollute um, downstream. It's technically north, so uh, it would pollute Voyagers National Park, Quetico Provincial Park, and can even pollute all the way up to Hudson Bay um, if it continues that direction. And this type of mining has never been done in Minnesota. Um, if it were to pollute, like the acid mine drainage is kind of the equivalent to like battery acid. Um, so for how clean the waters of the Boundary Waters are, like this type of pollution would just be detrimental to the wilderness. Totally. And another big important sort of piece that we get confronted with a lot is the question about jobs and, and sort of trying to keep uh, American jobs and mining jobs prevalent. And we do totally want to acknowledge that mining has been a huge thing in Minnesota, but this is kind of a different beast, both in terms of the type of pollution that it would generate, but also um, it's actually a Chilean company, is the parent company to Twin Metals, uh, and that company's called Antofagasta, and they've got a terrible track record back in Chile, um, both in terms of human rights abuses and environmental catastrophes. So, I, okay, I appreciate, oh, here's, hey, <laughs> hey, there's the french fries. Uh, I, I appreciate you you diving into that and to be honest you know 
my experience of just hearing you get into it is kind of the same as when I get, you know, a million emails in my inbox for other valuable environmental causes. It's just like you hear these horror stories. We've got to stop this bad thing from happening. Here's a bunch of pictures of other bad things that have happened. And, and you know, I mean, to be honest, it's really hard to really hard to take it seriously after a while not because it doesn't sound like a big deal but because I just I feel pretty disconnected from that sure. reality and I think part of my hope in talking with you is maybe to kind of remedy some of my own just like skepticism or just disillusionment with how serious or maybe not serious this is so I mean maybe you could like help me figure out who I can talk to or maybe even go see this mind site and for myself I mean just think basically I help me figure out how to get maybe involved more personally versus just like clicking a button in an email or something yeah definitely I mean there's the nice thing about these wilderness edge communities is that they're filled with all the people who you know both started the fight and are still involved and so if you're really wanting to do a, a deep dive you can totally do that and I'd actually I'd recommend that you sort of start quote unquote way back you know 1978 isn't way back for everybody it's way back for us uh, to an extent but uh, when the Boundary Waters Act was passed because there's there's this really incredible person named Barb Soderberg um, she lives in Ely and she spent her career with the Forest Service um, and she was a wilderness program manager and was really involved with all the decisions uh, in Congress in 1978 to draw the, the borders and make really? the regulations for the Boundary Waters, yeah. You know, I figure you'd talk about, like, Sigurd Olsen or some, you know, that's a name of Barb, whoever, I've never heard of her, her before. Yeah, Barb Soderberg, yeah, you know, Sig and we've got a lot of phenomenal Boundary Waters champions that we can celebrate and we feel super lucky to be able to have these legends these giants on on whose shoulders we we stand um barb soderberg uh is a real trailblazer for women in the u.s forest service i mean she uh, was one of the first female wildland firefighters in minnesota and one of the first in a key forest service management position in the region um so she's definitely frankly she's a badass and i, I would really encourage you to talk to her if you want to get a better sense of kind of what the boundary waters is and, and how it came to be in terms of uh legislation at least well you know that's pleasantly refreshing to hear a new name and a new person to talk to I mean I'd be really stoked to talk to her if you can make that happen yeah let's do it well now that I met with these campaign folks I actually feel like I'm in it now, and I gotta keep moving. I actually was able to get a hold of Barb, and she actually is a pretty amazing human being. We had a, such a long and great conversation, but this part you're about to hear is, is the best of it. story about me getting to be a wilderness ranger. I think I was the first female wilderness ranger in the uh, Forest Service um, nationally. I mean, they just didn't allow women to do that kind of thing. And I kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say I forced my way in, but I did a, lo a lot of things to help 
get me to be a wilderness ranger and then a whole lot of things to be on a wildland uh, firefighting team and um, just a whole lot of things to, um, I think, make it easier for women uh, in the Forest Service and on the Superior National Forest. When I started out, they didn't make women's size clothes. They didn't make gloves that would fit most women. Um, you know, everything was based on the Army and kind of a male-dominated organization. You know, I bit my tongue a lot of times. I picked my battles. Um, but I have to tell you that the blueness has really shaped my entire life, not just my work career, but I grew up in, in Tower. My dad was a um, district ranger with the DNR. And, you know, from the time I was tiny, I mean, I was canoeing, I was camping, uh, hunting, fishing. And I was a tomboy growing up, no doubt about it. But truthfully, had I known, I mean, I knew about the wilderness. And I have to tell you that when I was in high school, I, um, <laughs> I, I look back on it now and it was, wow, I knew about the the. Um, 64 Act back then, when it was going through um, the years before, when it was going through, you know, controversy and various pieces of legislation that would do something differently. I was in speech and I did um, an original oratory on why it needs to be a federally designated wilderness. And I think I went to the state meet with that um, speech. So, you know, it goes back a lot of years and I learned to you love the area. I learned to appreciate it. I learned how to take care of it. So it was just really, I just, just so, so fortunate to uh, fall into working full time for um, the Forest Service. And, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, I probably had a longer career than anybody I know working with one wilderness. There's another person I'm going to reach out to, and her name is Steffi O'Brien. She runs the Listening Point Foundation in Ely. I had the pleasure of meeting her through uh, an experience staying at Sigurd Olson's home in Ely and spending time at Listening Point, and I just know that she's going to be able to actually really bring some meaningful concepts into this whole thinking about the mine so I'm going to get a hold of her you are sort of the go-to person for us in this case uh, to share both the role of Sigurd Olson in establishing the boundary waters through the 1964 Wilderness Act and really to help us get a glimpse into what was happening that time and during that time period and and how that shaped where we are today so in that regard i think the first question the first thing i'd love to hear about is if you could explain the role that sigurd olson played in us in sort of maybe specifically in establishing the 1964 wilderness act and subsequently the 1978 bwca wilderness act what role did he play, and, and then maybe we can talk about why that is important 
you know, as we know, the Wilderness Act was signed in 1964, but the bill was actually introduced back in 1956. While a lot of the conservation groups had the same kind of goal for wilderness preservation, there was a lot of worry that, you know, were they asking too much too soon if they were going to ask for the banning of all the logging and what would the outboard motor use look like? And just the way that things sort of started, unfortunately, there were some, I suppose, missed opportunities for some good communication and some rumors sort of started spreading through northern Minnesota, especially around, you know, Olson was living in Ely at the time for most and for most of his life. But there was some misunderstanding when the bill was first introduced and a lot of rumors going around about, you know, this or that was allowed or not allowed or property was going to be seized. And there was a lot of clarification that needed to happen. And it made for a lot of tension. And SIG was kind of in the middle of it for for quite a long time. I can't imagine it was a comfortable period for him by any means. Yeah, you're, you're really painting this picture of a scene that isn't really that different from today, where you have multiple interest groups working towards similar goals for conservation and protection from an organizational standpoint. But then you have the, the folks on the ground who are impacted by these policy changes or impacted by these bills. And when I hear about all those organizations and all those people, and then Sigurd Olson in the middle of that sort of acting as a liaison across different people groups, it sounds like that's the place where the drama ensued. And they're, you know, trying to negotiate the best good for this space. Does that feel accurate? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, there's there's always been the struggle of trying to get people to agree <laughs> on things. And so finding finding the balance of being able to protect the wilderness and yeah, I think especially in this time, Sig had learned from his earlier experience that if you ask for too much too soon, it can backfire poorly. And so he, he used that, I guess, in his comments and the way that he was trying to approach the Wilderness Act, because he, of course, really, truly wanted it to happen. And it put him at odds, too, with even other members of conservation groups who still also wanted those things, but were afraid that if this or that was included or, you know, if things were worded in a certain way that that they would end up losing ultimately. So, yeah, I think I think that's pretty accurate. People were trying to find that balance of use, both economically and it, it was actually, in that case, it, it really was economical. Olson, you know, Sig wrote a few things about the aesthetic and why it was important. But the main issue at that time really, not the main issue, one of the main issues really was the, the logging and what, you know, what that use looked like there. Because the 1964 Wilderness Act did not forbid logging in what, you know, became the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. That was addressed a little bit later. So you're really describing this 14-year investment period in building to what we now have as our current management of the BWCA, specifically in regards to logging, the impact on the aesthetic. Those are things that were obviously, I would imagine, an important part of the vision 
but had to go through all of these phases. And I think when you describe that, Steffi, you get into this other important piece, which is how Sigurd's story and his process of taking this idea and this love for a place and putting it into action. One of the things we can learn from that is that that is a slow, steady, long-term investment to get to the point of change or protection that we're looking for. Would you expand on that any more than you already have or add to that at all about what we can learn from that process and, and Sig's role in it? It's good that you brought that up because Sig really was, he was in it long term and he truly believed that it was those sort of personal conversations and relationships with people that actually made the most impact over the long term. It was, you know, sitting down, talking with people, relating with people, even if they didn't agree with you. Because, you know, a lot of people at that time, they had respect for each other, even though a lot of them didn't agree. And even the ones who were on this, you know, more or less the same side of preservation didn't always agree with each other. But they still would have that respect and conversation generally. Of course, I'm not saying that existed all the time, because of course, there were some things that didn't happen so (laughs) respectfully and people blaming people, which is, is not a new thing either. But in terms of the long game of trying to sit down with people who have a stake in it, who are willing to talk and listen and actually have a, a conversation. Sig really believed that that was a big part of actually making things happen. I knew a lot of this history already. Sig Olson creating the Boundary Waters, this whole process, and now Barb. And learning all that just really helps me understand that protecting something actually takes a lot of work and a lot of human effort. Um, and, and so that's motivated me to actually stay engaged with this and to kind of keep showing up for my part in it. And at the same time, I'm still a little skeptical about whether this mine is as disastrous as it, it's made out to be. And I actually, I'm, I think it'd be good to talk to a miner. And I remember uh, a few years back, a letter to the editor in the Star Tribune. Uh, it's the state's largest newspaper uh, here in Minnesota, at least. And, and it was by an actual miner. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to track that guy down. I think his name was Bob. Hi, I'm uh, Bob Tammon. My wife and I are retired in Sudan, Minnesota. That's the home of Minnesota's first iron mine. I worked in several of the mines in Minnesota as well as Upper Michigan, Wyoming, North Dakota, Montana. So I've had experience in the mining industry. I've kind of seen what they do environmentally and economically. So I've seen what the economy looks like while I'm working on a mining project. And now that Pat and I are retired, we go back and visit some of those mines 20 or 30 years later. I see what the mining towns look like after they've had an active mining operation. And it's probably what makes me 
a little skeptical about using mining for economic development. The thing is, mining does not contribute to the a community's economics as much as we think it does. You know, if we look at some fairly reliable numbers, we'll see that mining is less than 1% of Minnesota's economy. And, you know, as the years go by, we're seeing more and more how valuable our natural resources are. You know, you only have to come to Grand Marais in the summertime, and you can't find a parking spot on Main Street. There's people lined up 40 deep at the world's best donut shop downtown there, <laughs> and you get close to dying of hunger before you get to the front of the line. <laughs> and I think that's a wonderful example of what our natural resources mean to those of us living close here and from probably every state in the Union that comes here to visit Grand Marais. Our natural resources are valuable economically, and mining is decreasingly valuable. And, you know, Pat and I are getting a little older. In our younger days, we made some great trips into the Boundary Waters. We'd go out 10 days at a time. Now we're a little older. I just had a hip replaced. I don't walk very far, but, you know, there's places where you can go into the Boundary Waters at an entry point. It's an easy portage. If you're just going in for the day, you write yourself a day pass, and we limp on into the Boundary Waters, and we enjoy it for a day. And I want to preserve that. It's it's a resource for everybody, whether you're a, an animal that can uh, portage all day long, or whether you're senior citizens like Pat and I, where you have to take your time. You know, Pat takes her berry bucket, and I might take a fishing rod, and we hike on into Isabella Lake, and we have a day of enjoyment. And we want to preserve that. And we've seen that mining does not create a lifetime of employment for anybody. You know, I started working in the mines in the late 60s, and you know, there's some people put most of their lives at the mines, but I don't know anybody who worked continuously in the mines all those years. Because every now and then the economy tightens up, they shut the mines down, send the employees home. It's not a situation where they have lifetime employment. And you know, the Boundary Waters is a lifetime resource for all of us. We see it driving down the main street of Grand Marais. You see the license plates from all over. It's kind of a game we play, see how many different states are represented on the main street of Grand Marais. And I think it's especially important to us, because I worked at Silver Bay, what is that, about 50 miles down the road here. I worked there when we were getting the tailings out of the lake, 79, 80. And it's an example that we should take to heart. You know, the mining people say, well, let's do the EIS, let's do the science, let's examine it, we'll do it right. Well, we have some examples of mining company science, and one of my f favorite examples right now is Black Beach. You drive, <clears throat> you drive to Silver Bay, and there's a big sign advertising Black Beach. Well, what majority of people don't know, before they built that reserve mine at Silver Bay, they did some science experiment, and they were satisfied scientifically that the tailings, all of them, would go to the bottom of Lake Superior and stay there. Well, when they started that plant, the very fine tailings were all over the lake. They drifted all around down to Duluth, across to Wisconsin, upper Michigan. The little coarser tailings, they washed up on shore and made Black Beach. They shouldn't be bra bragging about Black Beach. Black Beach is a failure of mining company science. And when I sat here 50 years later, 
thinking, do I trust mining company science? I don't. Matthew, it sounds like the uh, the people you met with uh, were really great to talk to, and Bob especially made a lot of really good points. Yeah, Matthew, you should go see the mine site for yourself. It's kind of wild to be on the water and look out and kind of see this expanse of forest and just where they're trying to put this mine. It's kind of insane. Join me in Ely, Minnesota, on the edge of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, at the mine site itself, where this all could go down very soon. That dry stack tailings facility, the mound itself is about 428 acres, and when it's completed, it'll be 130 feet high. And just so for, for comparison, I mean, right now, most of the trees around us, it's a mix of, looks like spruce, jack pine, some birch and some poplar. But I mean, the tallest tree around us is maybe 50 feet. I mean, that white pine back there might be 60 at the most. So you've got your dry stack tailings facility that's 130 feet high, so that's gonna tower over everything here. Coming up next. <laughs>